Well, I'm excited to be here today, and after that, if I can sit and not cry, um, that would be that would be excellent. Or if I do, that would be all right too. So I've yeah, actually the last time I was preaching in front of like the whole church family, I was barefoot in India, and I had all the preparation of. And this is our sister from America, and she's going to bring us the word this morning. So there was a little bit little bit more time on this one. I've been, oh, Papa and Mr. Terry have been asking me to come for a while, so I'm excited to actually be here. But um, just this morning, I, I have something that is on my heart. I have a little bit of feedback in, in my ear if you want to maybe turn me down just a touch. But every year I... As it, as it gets towards the end of the year, it's about November, I start asking the Lord, okay, so what What are we going to do for, what's for next year? I'm like, I'm already ready. I'm like, yeah, what do you have to say about next year? And so I, I start this thing where I start praying about what, God, what do you have for this next year? And he speaks to me a lot in words, which is why I do a lot of writing, a lot of blogging, because that's kind of how I connect with him. And I'm not really one of those like, oh, I saw it in a vision and, you know, that sort of thing doesn't. I don't know, it's just it's just not how he connects with me as much. And so and so I was asking the Lord for the, um for this year for twenty eighteen, he gave me the word consolation. And in that moment that sounded like a really good word because I was at a point where it had been probably the hardest two years, but definitely last year was the most one of the most difficult that I have had. Just personally and with my family and we found out my dad had cancer and there's all kinds of things going on and gosh crabby broke your hip last year it was just like everything was just felt like it was chaotic and all these things and I was like God but you already told this to me like we I thought we were this is exactly what we're doing I thought this is what you had and then it felt like it all got ripped away and so he gave me this word consolation and if you're like me, probably the first thing that you thought of with consolation, I've talked to several friends about this, including Crystal, is consolation prize, that we hear that a lot. And so consolation prize, the real idea of it is that you're not the winner. The idea of consolation prize is that you lost, and then here's a little something to kind of pat you on the back to console you in your you know, sorrow of not really having been the winner. And I thought, well okay, I mean, comfort, like, yeah, that sounds like it could be a good word. Uh, and then the first thing that, that kind of popped into my mind was, uh, let me see, I'm trying to remember if it's in Matthew or Luke, sometimes I get those mixed up a little bit, but where Simeon is waiting in the temple, okay, we're in Luke. So in, uh, in Luke chapter 2, it tells um, after the birth of Christ, we hear just this little snippet about this man named Simeon who's been waiting in the temple for a really long time because God said, you won't die until you see the consolation of Israel. And when the Lord was saying that to Simeon, he is saying, you won't die until you see the Messiah. And that's, and that's what that word is there. It's talking about messianic salvation. It's talking about Jesus. And it's really interesting because that word there, it, it comes from a Greek word, paraklesis, which is used a lot to talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it, it refers to a lot like help, encouragement, coming alongside and supporting exhortation. There's a lot of pieces of that. And it, 
it comes into play quite a bit in the New Testament, but it's really interesting that that word is used there because there it's talking about the messianic salvation. And so then the idea with consolation prize comes in, okay, the, the consolation of Israel, like, wow, sin really stinks. I'm sorry. You know, here's, here's Jesus coming. Oh, it's, well, come take care of that for you. But it gives us, we get this idea in our heads of it's like, it, it maybe wasn't quite the best. Like, consolation only, only happens after, you know, you, you've missed out on something. And so, as the Lord began to speak to me about this, I thought it was interesting because Jesus was God's best idea. That was his best idea for humanity. He wasn't just coming as a pat on the back in our sorrow. He wasn't just coming as a band-aid for our sin. And so what does that really mean for him to be the consolation of Israel? And so actually, interestingly, the next thing that I kind of started on because I, I flip back and forth. Sometimes I just go to whatever book in the Bible kind of strikes my fancy. I'm kind of flipping through and I'm like, oh, I haven't read that in a while. Or sometimes I have something specific in mind. And so I ended up in the book of Ruth, which is a fairly short book. And um, the title itself tells us a little bit of something about how we usually see the book. Is That's usually the character we think of in this story is Ruth. Um, but it's interesting as you read commentaries that actually it's not Ruth who is the primary point of the book of Ruth. And so just to kind of give a little background on the story of Ruth, depending on how familiar you are with it, it's about this family. So there's the mother and father and they take their sons. There's been a famine in the land of Israel. And so already there's a famine, and they've had to go, so they leave this family. It's so bad that they had to leave and go into a neighboring country, into one of the you know, pagan countries. They don't follow the Lord. So already you're stepping away from something that you see as your inheritance, as your right, as God-given. And so there's already that coming into play right away. And so the family steps away. And while they're there, the two there are two sons and the mom and the dad. And the two sons marry wives from there, which already again it gets a little bit questionable like is that really maybe God's best idea and so you start wrestling with a few of these things as the book opens up and then what happens it just kind of takes the cake for all the other things that have already gone on is that not only does the husband die but then the two sons die as well and in that culture without men as the head of the family there was no one to take care of you there was no one to support you no one to provide for you and so all that's left is Naomi, who's the mother, and now she's and now she's a widow, and the two daughters-in-law are widows too, and, and one of them is Ruth. And so as the story begins to unfold, Naomi says, you girls really need to go back to your families. You know, they'll take care of you. You'll find someone else to marry. Life will go on for you. Essentially, she said, for me, there's nothing left. God's hand has gone out against me. And that's it. I have nothing. And so kind of it begins to build. And Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay. And the other daughter-in-law says, well, I'll stay too. And so they go back and forth. And eventually the one daughter-in-law ends up going back to her home, going back to where her family is going to care for her. And Ruth stays with Naomi. And so a lot of times that's where we kind of start really picking up the story. We think, oh, Ruth, yes, this is a story about Ruth. But really... 
this story is about what the Lord is doing for Naomi. And the solution was Ruth. Because God's best idea was consolation, not the pat on the back kind of consolation you've really lost out, but his complete restoration of us, consoling us in his kindness. And so it's interesting as the story goes on, because Naomi says they, she and Ruth traveled, they travel back to the place of their inheritance. They travel back to their homeland and they've got nothing left. Without a man in the family, you can't, you're not even considered able to provide for yourself or take care of yourself. And Naomi has nothing. Now she has no sons, no husband to take care of her. She has no grandchildren. And that's how women especially were cared for during that time. And so you even think of that now. If you're left alone and you're a young lady, maybe you're a widow, you've got family, you've got other people around, you've got a long time maybe ahead of you where these different opportunities could work out. But if you've got no one, and that's where Naomi felt she was at and even said, the Lord's brought me here. I went out full and the Lord brought me home again empty. And she, it's interesting as you read through um, some of the commentaries, the actual, the word she uses there is Shedai. Um, which is the word for mountain, and it's a name for the Lord, but kind of this idea, he's unyielding, he's over everything, and she uses some very formal terms for the Lord, just saying, this is it. This, this is his, his plan for me, and this, and this is all there is, and I have nothing apart from this. And so it's interesting because we think that everything... And looking at this, or I think, it looked like everything got stripped away. There was nothing left. I mean, you really thought, wow, that that was God's best for me, and it's gone. And so the story goes on, and they find they find a near kinsman who within the again, within the culture, the idea is that the closest male relative if you've got widowed women in the family who need cared for, you're going to either take them in as your wife or you take them in to care for them. And so that's what Naomi sent Ruth out to do. First, she sends her out, we need food. So go glean in this field. At least you're going to be safe here. We've got nothing. There's really not much to lose. And so Ruth goes out and they find that they have this close kinsman left. And so Naomi says, this is our chance. Okay, we can we can redeem this, we can pull this back. And so it's actually the idea of a kinsman redeemer, which again means that you kind of take back your family, you take back your inheritance. And so Boaz comes in, it's this whole story of Boaz and Ruth, and you could dive into all the interesting things about how the Lord provides redemption for us. And even the idea, we call it a type, we say maybe Moses is a type of Jesus. And these different things that give us hints of what God's plan is all throughout Scripture. But it's interesting because you go to the very end of the book and it kind of is this interesting, almost this little bit of a love story unfolding, this kind of a romance. And you hear a lot about Ruth and Boaz and Ruth goes into Boaz and then he... He says he'll marry her, he'll redeem the family, he'll take back the inheritance. He goes to the gate, he takes care of all of this. And the very last snip in the end, so you hear very little about Naomi throughout this story. But really, this is her predicament because she has nothing. It's not Ruth who needed someone. 
It wasn't Ruth who needed cared for, but it was Naomi who said, I've got nothing left. And so this is very interesting uh, going toward the very end in chapter four. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then so, okay, so you think, whoa, congratulations, it's exciting, God's restored, you know, restoring things, but that wasn't where he stopped. He didn't stop with, I'm going to restore Ruth, I'm going to make this better for Ruth, and Naomi is left with nothing. That's not God's best plan. And so this is interesting to me. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And also the women gave him a name saying, there's a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. And he's the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then it starts, you know, down this whole genealogy. But I think it's fascinating because it wasn't just the idea of God's going to bring back a little piece of something. God's best idea was to restore. And what he did is he restored through something. It wasn't his second best idea to restore Naomi. It didn't come and famine came and death came and sin came in. And God said, wow, you know, that really stinks. Um, I guess, you know, I've got this other guy over here and we can kind of work something out. That's not what God does. See, when he has a plan, and he always does, it, it comes into question, are all God's ideas his best ideas? Are all his plans his best plans? And you start to wrestle with that a little bit in the book of Genesis because Adam and Eve really mess things up you'd think. And then it becomes a question of, did sin kind of triumph over what God was doing? Did it, did it steal so much from what he was doing that all we get is this consolation, this pat on the back where he kind of puts a band-aid on it later? But it's so hard to not think of it kind of like that because we say, oh, if only that had never happened. If only life weren't so hard. If only here I had made a better choice, but I really messed it up. And so now I'm waiting just for God to do something that gives me a little, you know, a little squeezy hug, a little oomph to keep going. But that's not, that's not God's best idea. Jesus was God's best idea. And when he said, the consolation of Israel is coming. What he's talking about is he's not the backup plan. Jesus wasn't the backup plan for our sin. He wasn't the backup plan for us messing things up. He wasn't the second best idea for his creation. That was God's best. And so you can start to say, well, but if sin, but no. It has no, sin and death have no authority over what God is doing. So regardless of our choice and even in his love that he gave us his free will so that we could choose him, sin and death has no authority over what he is doing. And we see that in the story of Naomi. And so as I began to look at this little bit of genealogy and those, you know, can get real dull really easily a little bit sleep inducing sometimes if you're feeling really tired sometimes you can you can flip to some of those and get started um just reading through a few names but i 
I took this idea and I, and I began to think, okay, so Lord, if you're consoling us and consolation isn't a pat on the back, if it's not a band-aid for things that have hurt, for where sin has stolen from me, for where other people have stolen from me, from where I thought we were doing something and you were speaking something to me and then someone else's bad choice messed it up from the spot where sin and death are stealing from me, from where I could have been wiser. If that's not the end of it, if it's not just to cover up those things and make them a little better, put a little glue in the cracks, then what really is it? And so... It's interesting because going through in the beginning of Matthew, the genealogy of Christ, I started to take this idea of consolation in, deeper into scripture. Okay, Obed was consolation, not just for Ruth, not just for the plan that God had, the bigger picture that he's one of the forefathers of King David, who's in the genealogy of Christ, and we have all this rich history surrounding it. Not just that, but was Naomi's consolation too. And then you begin to look. David was consolation for his parents. They had had, they had had sons, and the Lord had already told the people of Israel, if you choose to have a king other than me, this is what's going to happen. And that's what they chose. They chose it anyway. They had King Saul. That was God's choice um, for their king. And so it kind of comes into this place where then Saul isn't following the Lord and he's he's tormented, but then David comes in and this is God's best plan and David comes in and he's consolation for Saul. And not only is he consolation for Saul in those moments of torment, but then later he becomes consolation for Israel because he takes it back from a hand of a king who's decided to no longer follow the Lord. And so he comes and he brings the kingdoms back together. Solomon was consolation. David, Bathsheba. We've got all kinds of stories in here. And David really blew it. I mean, he blew it a lot of times. But always coming back to that place of letting God restore him. But he wasn't really into it in this case. And, you know, so he sees this other beautiful woman. He's watching her bathe on a rooftop. And then he's already shouldn't probably be doing that. He hadn't gone off to war. He takes her. They have a child. The child doesn't live. And the prophet comes and he's like, essentially, dude, you really messed it up. Like, when are you going to repent for this? And, he, you know, David had the other, he'd had the husband kill him, takes, takes her in, and David repents. He turns back. He says, Lord, I've really messed this up. I've sinned. I've gone against what you were saying. And then along comes Solomon. And he's considered one of the wisest kings in history and all of Israel. And so it's interesting as you begin to dive into all these stories coming right down to the very last where Jesus is the consolation of Israel. And so as we come to that place, again, Jesus isn't a bandage for the pain of sin. He's not our pat on the back for things that have gone wrong. He's not the backup plan or the better luck next time kind of a deal. That's not what Jesus was doing. That's not why God sent him. He sent him as the consolation of Israel. 
Jesus didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave three days later so that we could carry all these burdens with us perpetually. He didn't, that's not why he came. He didn't come to put glue in the cracks, to hold things together until someday it could get better. He came as restoration. He came to completely redeem and restore. And when he rose from the dead, it doesn't mean that we have this someday hope of heaven, whatever that looks like and however you want to conceptualize that term. It's not this someday hope of of a good life later and, you know, it's hard now and we're stuck here with people doing terrible things or terrible things happening to us or these things that we wrestle with that we don't know how to understand. It's not a someday hope. It's a hope for now because when Jesus came, that was the beginning of eternity for us. In him, eternity has already started. In the book of, ooh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, I always want to say Lamentations, but it's not that. In the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter, I believe it's chapter 3, verse, verse 10 or 11, and it says that the Lord has set eternity in the hearts of men. So we were designed to crave that. We were looking for that consolation all along. That is what we have needed for all of time. And that's what it was always his intention to provide. Right from the very beginning, God already stated his intentions, his plan to display his grace through the consolation of Jesus Christ. And not a grace that just covers things up, not a grace that makes things better for later, but the pure consolation that makes it now. And so we're already walking in eternity. We're already living in that his, it didn't give us eternal life for later. It gave us to us to walk in it now. So I'm kind of flipping through my notes a little bit here, but it's an earthly reality that we're marred by sin, or we were, but Jesus. And so he came, and as he stepped in to restore those broken places, he wasn't coming in to tell me, Sabra, your year has been really hard and your heart is really broken. Let me offer you a Band-Aid for that. He wasn't coming to say, Sabra, how many times did they say your dad wasn't going to make it even till the next week, that he wasn't going to make it until Christmas? How many times did that happen and he wasn't here to say, but it's going to be good later, Sabra? Because you'll get to be with me in heaven forever. That's a beautiful reality that we have that also. But that's not all he came for. It's interesting if you go to the book of Hebrews. Because really, I, one of my favorite books. And I see that really intensely there. But going into the book of, into the book of Hebrews in chapter, in chapter 6. It says... See, God had made a promise, Abraham, again, we can go into all kinds of stories because it's woven all throughout scripture. This was God's plan from the very beginning, and so that's why we can see it throughout scripture. When God made a promise to Abraham, see, he made this promise, he said, I'm going to, essentially, I'm going to redeem the world through 
you through your seed. This is my plan for restoration. He let Abraham know that thousands of years before that ever happened. And so that is the promise he began to make to Abraham, and that's the promise he was fulfilling. And so it goes into this idea of of giving an oath. So God's word. How sure is God's word? So it says in verse 16 of chapter 6 in Hebrews, it says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is them for them an end of all dispute. So I'm in the New King James here, so that can get a little, little bit wordy. But essentially, you're swearing by something that's greater than you to prove that your word is true. And so it's interesting because God's sworn by himself. So it says God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability, so the unchanging nature of his counsel, of his word, he confirmed it by an oath, so that by two immutable or unchanging things in which it's impossible for him to lie, we might have strong consolation. And so he's sworn it by his word and by his nature. That's who he is. It is his best idea to console us in his kindness, not to provide that band-aid or that pat on the back. And I know I've gone back to that several times, but that was not his best idea. His best idea was Jesus. His best idea was to provide us this strong consolation. And this is interesting because this tells us in this section what exactly the intention was that God had. It says, by two things, by his word and by his nature, that it's impossible for God to lie, so that we have this strong consolation. We who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So this idea of fleeing for refuge, this is what we feel in the story of Ruth and Naomi. We're fleeing for refuge. This is what we feel when we say, my heart is breaking and I don't know what to do. This is what we feel, this idea of fleeing for refuge. When we say, I've sinned and I don't know what to do. I should have made a wiser choice. When we say, that person has hurt me and I don't know what to do. This is this idea of fleeing for refuge where we need something that's safe and something that's sure. And we're looking for something that doesn't just try to fix it up a little or those little platitudes that say, oh, but but someday it'll get better. That's not consolation. That might be that might be a momentary little, you know, oh, I'm I'm trying to comfort you or make you feel better. But consolation isn't just a feel better idea. That was not God's idea just to say, oh, feel feel better, or I hope you get better soon. So we have fled for to lay hold of the hope set before us, fled for refuge to lay hold of this hope set before us. And this is our strong consolation. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. So walk into some of this temple analogy. I'm not going to dig into it deeply right now. But where the forerunner is entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is going along um, Hebrew, this idea that Jesus always has been and always will be, not just in order of earthly priests, again, set to provide these small pieces of consolation or comfort along the way where we can say, oh, our sins are forgiven for now, or this is good enough for now, or we do this again later because it keeps building up. But where 
He's forever and he's unchanging. And he was already there in the beginning. So back when Adam and Eve were in the garden, already there, Jesus had been. And so this idea of consolation wasn't one that God thought up. He wasn't thinking, oh, man, okay, sin, wow, what can we do to fix this up? It wasn't, it wasn't that idea. He wasn't, oh, let me, a solution. Oh, I know, Jesus, this is going to be a good answer. We'll, we'll fix this up. Jesus was already there. And consolation by redeeming and reconciling and completely restoring, already his best idea. In the book of John, it says that, that Jesus was there in the beginning and he was the word and he was with God. And so, not this idea of it was God's second best plan to provide this for us. Not this idea that, oh, we can take hold of this to, to make sure that our futures are a little bit better but that in the here and now, that he's ready to be our strong consolation, our living hope. He wasn't the second thought or the backup plan. We quote, and by we, I mean those of us, you know, we're following Jesus, we're loving his word, we're living in it, and we we like to quote Romans 8.28 a lot. For all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. When we say that, when I say that, when I've heard it said, it usually means we catch on to that for all things work together for the good. We put kind of a time stamp on it. We, we look at it as very much a future tense where we're saying, oh, they all, it all works out in the end. That's kind of where some of those little platitudes come from. Eventually it'll get better, but it hurts now. And so in the here and now, see, when it's talking about Roman in Romans, where Paul is talking, nothing can separate us from the love of God, not height, not depth, not angel, not demon, nothing in heaven or hell, nothing in all the world can separate us from the love of Christ. That's now. And these are now promises. And so it's about learning to live in the right now of consolation. Not that all things work together for good just in the future, Not that that was God's only idea, that that's the only place where he's going to meet you, but that he's meeting you here and now, that he's already working all things together for good because sin and death had no hold over what he was doing. Because if sin and death have hold over what he's doing, that says that our hope is only for later, and that's a small hope. But we have the living hope, which is Jesus Christ, who's gone before the Lord as our strong consolation, Not so that we could fix things up, but so that he could completely take back what already belonged to us through him. Jeremiah 29, 11 is another one we like to quote. We get that. For I know the plans I have for you. To give you a future and a hope. I like to say those things a lot. But we think of it future. We don't think of it as right now. Do we think of, God, these really good plans you have for me this exact moment where this got stolen from me, but I'm ready to see right now how you're going to take this back. Where I thought maybe that was your best plan, but people have a free will and they're peopley and they do peopley horrible things and they take things from you that they shouldn't take where 
sin has broken things that should never have been broken. But God, I'm waiting to see that right now because I trust that this is your right now best plan, your consolation in Jesus Christ. See, in him, it was already finished. He is already the consolation of Israel. Not he's going to be, but he already came as the consolation of Israel. That was God's best. That he reconciled all things to himself. That he died once for all to give us, as Hebrews says, a better hope, a better covenant based on better promises. That was his idea of reconciliation. That was his idea to console us. That was his idea to pull us back to himself. That's his idea to restore everything that's been stolen, that's been broken, whether we did it, whether someone else did it. It can't interfere with God's best plan. Now, we have a choice to participate in that. We have a choice to go along with what he's doing, to be part of what he is, not even what he's doing, but what he has already done. We have a choice to participate in that. And close my eyes, I can say, but it still hurts. It still hurts. I, I wanted that. I don't know if I want this. Could a plan you have be better? Could a other something be better? Is this your best? Because I feel like your best got stolen from me. But then it comes down to our question, can sin steal God's best from us? Because if it can... That makes our hope a small one. If sin can steal what God is doing, that means that what we have wasn't enough to cover the brokenness of sin. And so Jesus came to give us a greater reality. See, we're living, and from the moment we're born, and sometimes, I mean, really, in some ways, even before, we're already on a collision course with death. That's what our mortal bodies, dust, bones, flesh, however you'd like to phrase it, that's what's happening. We're already on that course. They don't live forever. They don't last. But Jesus came to superimpose a reality that was so much greater than just what we're seeing and experiencing with our mortal bodies. Because what he came to do, and this is, oh, this is such a beautiful concept, and it's from one of my favorite John Mark McMillan songs, and he wrote How He Loves, um, and some other good ones. But this idea so captured me as I was, as, as the Lord has been speaking to me about consolation, Jesus came to give that greater reality that actually he loves us like death in reverse. Not just that it was a love that held us together. Not just that it was a love that carried us into this eternity with the Father and all these beautiful promises that we carry throughout Scripture, but actually that every day with Jesus, the consolation of Israel, the living hope, is a life of the reversal of death, that every day I am not dying, but I am becoming more and more alive because he's loving me like death in reverse. It's actually a complete reversal 
of the pain of sin. It's a complete reversal of everything that sin has stolen and marred and that death would take from us. It reverses that and it brings his life. And that's the joy of eternity here and now. That's the joy of the consolation of Israel, our living hope. That is what we have because that's what we've been given through him. It's not second best. We get to partake of the reversal of death in our everyday life where everyone else would say, oh, this is being stolen. Time is going by fast. This, is, this just isn't what I hoped. We're looking at a situation. We're looking at a person. We can look at ourselves and we can say, but his love is death in reverse. That what his grace is doing in me is not just for someday. That that is a grace that is placed on us that reverses the effect of that sin and death. And so just as we get closing, we're, we're a small body and so we have time and there's a lot of wonderful people in here who I've known so much of my life and I'm so happy to say it, and who I know if oh I know if any of us want prayer. I, I mean I speak this from my own point of needing it so badly, where, where I've been talking to the Lord, and usually His His thing for me for each year. I should know better by now. Maybe I should be more afraid of what it's going to do because usually it's completely not what I thought it was, and where I was, it, but it meets us at a point of need where I was just so even so numb, which is hard because I'm passionate about everything I do. And I can be passionate about what kind of rice is really the best kind of rice to have. And to be in that spot where I felt numb, where I felt broken, where I felt empty, where I felt like Naomi, where everything had been taken from me, where I felt like I already had God's best and then I already had to leave behind promises and then something else happens and then it's just all gone. Where I felt like that, God met me at my point of need. And where consolation meant one thing to me last November, I'm starting to look at it in a completely different way because that's what I needed. And that's where the Lord meets us is at our point of need. And that's part of his consolation is that it's not just, oh, I'm going to give you this grand revelation or here it is but that actually meeting at that point of need to restore and to take back. And so that's where that's where I've been at and there are people in this room who've prayed with me through a lot of a lot of crazy things how much of it maybe everyone has known is is a little bit different and I mean my papa knows lots of things cuz he's been with me a long time but um but if if we need if we need prayer, I would encourage you to seek someone out this morning. But my invitation to you this morning is where have you settled for pat on the back Jesus when you should be staking your claim in Jesus Christ, the living hope, the consolation of Israel? Where have you settled for a spiritual band-aid when you should have brought your wounds to the great physician who cures incurable wounds? Where have you settled where have you resigned yourself to someday or it'll get better when Jesus wants to be your consolation victory today? Where, where have you given up your hope? Where are you settling a small hope? I know where that is for me. 
but I would encourage you that if you need that today, if you're settling for a pat on the back, if you're settling for something that just kind of covers up the wounds, if you've got those places that you're still wrestling with, God, I'm still raw in these spots. That's where he's meeting you today. And so I would love to pray with you for those places, and I know lots of people in this room would be willing to pray with you for those places where we can just come together and we can say, this is my point of need, and I've settled here, but I'm looking for something better because I know that this is the better promise on a better covenant. And so, Lord, we just thank you today for this time together where we can come just before you at all our points of need. We thank you that you are a consolation, not that you are a second best idea, not that you were here just to patch things up, to get us along until the joys of eternity, but that your consolation is our consolation victory. It is the here and now in this very moment the healing of wounds that we thought were incurable. Where it's the restoring of hope. Not just through a small hope that is someday or that lasts, but through the living hope. Through your presence. So we thank you today and we come before you with our need. Because you're not afraid of our needing. And you're not afraid of our wanting. And you're not afraid of our pain and of our longing. You're not even afraid of sin. We're never too much for you. So we thank you, Lord, for all you do, for all you're doing. We thank you also for all you've already done. Teach us what it means to walk in that fully and freely with you as our consolation. Amen.